Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. Amen. Now, if you've been here any of the last five weeks, you know that we have been studying the book of First John. Oh, man. Brownie points to whoever was on that. Um, so this week is actually First John part five, and I'm titling it this, The Infinitely Repeated Test That We Hate Taking. How many of us are terrible test takers in here? Still... Still, no, I mean, I mean, like, literally, even now, if you had to take a test, you'd just be like, yeah, just put me down for an F. Just kidding. That's terrible. Some people were like, wow, that's abrasive. It's like, no, that's how my mind was. I was the kid in school that was like, okay, if I turn in my homework, what is the bare minimum grade I can get on a test to have a B minus and not be grounded on the weekend? So, but, but... <laughs> But what I want to talk about today is the infinitely repeated test that we hate taking. And specifically, if you have been here the last few weeks, we are going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through 1 John. And today's passage is a scripture that we're going to be focusing on is 1 John chapter 3, verses 13 through 24. So those, that's where we're going to spend majority of our time. But before we even get to it, really what's happening today is we are talking about the infinitely hated and repeated test of loving others. Now, some of us are like, wait, I, it was funny. I was on FaceTime with my mom and last night, and she was talking to me about this because my mom, even though I'm uh, in my 30s now, still asks me in her terms to run it by her, which is essentially, can you give me your 35-minute sermon in 35 seconds? And, and I call her my colander. Okay, which is where you put the vegetables in and then you, you put it, you, you spray it down and it kind of it, it kind of gets all the gunk off them. Like I'm like, mom's mom, you're my colander in which I just put the content in there. and You just spray it down, get all the dirty stuff off. She's going to listen to this and probably text me later. It's fine. But uh, but the reason I say that is because she was like, you know, the infinitely repeated test that we I like loving others. But I want to word it like this. Do you like loving others by forgiving them? Trusting them when trust has been broken. Believing in them when they haven't believed in you. Helping others when you don't have time to do it. Serving others and submitting to others that you don't want to serve and you sure as heck don't want to submit to. Not being cynical of the world. Believing actually the best. Do we love others in, should I say, knowing the fact that God loves them just as much as he loves you? See, when I talk about the infinitely hated test that we repeatedly have to take infinitely forever, is it's this idea that we are called to love because he loved. In 1 John, if you, if you know this, right, I've referenced this every week, but I want you to fully understand the historical context. This is why I bring it up every week of 1 John. And really what you have to understand is that in the New Testament, this is one of the last letters that will be written that will be remembered. Not only will it be written and be remembered, but it is written by John, which was the apostle, the beloved, the beloved disciple that many believe Jesus' cousin, that had the closest proximity to Jesus' living ministry every single day. 
This letter that is dated 85 to 95 AD, which if you know anything about history and biblical times, this is 30 years after the death of Paul. Paul, who writes two-thirds of the New Testament, right, 30 years after his death, John is writing this book. John has walked with Jesus. John has pioneered church expansion. John has seen the persecution of the church. John has been exiled. And John has an ability to speak on a variety of topics that, in all honesty, nobody has the ability to speak like he does. And I would even say not even Paul. John, who literally, flesh and blood of Jesus, walked with Jesus for the three years of ministry, and not only that, has suffered for Jesus, has seen all of his other disciples be martyred for Jesus, who has been boiled in oil as Rome tried to kill him for Jesus, and then exiled for years for Jesus. This is who is writing this book. If you want an example of somebody who has been resilient Somebody who has been faithful, somebody who has been committed, somebody who has stayed true, it is John. And not only is it John, but I believe this book specifically is one of the most important because what's happening is John is nearing the end of his life. And what he's doing is he's offering a course correction to the followers of Christ. The course correction is what we've been spending week after week after week through. Is This letter is not just written in hopes of, hey guys, let me write something and you should do what I say. This letter is written from a man who walked with Jesus, built the church, lived through persecution, and is now at the end of his life writing instructions based off of the lens he has seen through and hoping for realignment. But before we go into the passage... A quick story for you. Believe it or not, um, I'm a pastor. I'm the pastor here, but but uh, my my uh, my I didn't think that would get that much of a laugh, but it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. That's why I played it in downtown because anywhere else, people would be like, "No, you're the children's pastor. You're the facilities pastor." It's like in downtown, they're like, "Ah, oh, you can make it. You can make it." Uh, if you try down here, you better be ready. Um, but anyway, I. Uh, One thing about pastoring is that you have a full-time job of pastoring and a part-time job of moving people. Some people are laughing about that, but the people laughing about it are people who've asked or I've helped move. Or people in this room I've moved multiple times. But anyway... um, But here's the thing. What's funny is this is I, I, I kind of like claim credits to like I have moved just a bajillion people. I'm a master packer, very efficient, uh, moving. Might break a few pieces of furniture, but it's not a big deal, right? You got free moving, okay? There might be a casualty. Um, but, uh, but, Jamie and Steph, but, uh, but I remember I was uh, moving somebody a few years ago, and um, we had a flatbed trailer at our church. And, and we were moving this person on the flatbed trailer. And as we were moving this person on the flatbed trailer, I'd gotten on the highway. We weren't going super far, but as I'd gotten on the highway, I remember I'm driving. I'm driving a Suburban with a bunch of dudes. And as I'm driving, I feel the back of the car start to move, like side to side. And I remember looking out my rearview mirror, and this is probably five or six years ago. I look out the rearview mirror, and I can see the trailer shifting behind me from side to side. And the only thing I could myself is, oh, the trailer has become unhitched. And not only has it become unhitched, but it's only being held by breakaway chains. 
So, so what's happening is, is since it's being held by the breakaway chains, it is dropped and it is going underneath my car, side to side. And I remember I look at the people in the car and I look at them, I'm like, hey, everybody put your seatbelt on. Because if you turn too quick or anything, it could pull the whole side of the car out and then we do, and we're on the highway. So I remember I am like tripping out because I know I'm like, okay, I, I've pulled trailers and done all this before. I know that I had that trailer connected. But I remember all I do is I just don't even touch the gas, don't touch the brake, which for some of you guys, this is a good learning lesson. You don't touch the gas, you just coast to a stop. And I remember the whole time I'm just like, I'm just, you know, praying in my tongues and hallelujah, God, please help us. <laughs> And we get, and finally I'm like coasting, 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 get to the stop. And I remember getting out of the car and it's probably been about a half mile or a mile. And I get out of the car and I look and our hitch had not fall or the, the trailer hadn't fallen off of the hitch. The bolt had fallen out of the hitch. So when you, when you hitch a, 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 a ball to, to, the, to the Suburban or, that, or a truck or whatever it is, you drive a bolt through it and that bolt is what holds the hitch there. And so I'm like looking and I'm like, okay, the, the bolt fell out. Because the bolt fell out, then the hitch fell out. And when the hitch fell out, then the trailer was just shooting all over. And I remember I, it was crazy because the breakaway chains had held it all together for a period of time until I noticed. And ultimately when I noticed, I was able to stop. And here's the funniest part of the story. So I'm a little irritated, and I'm like, okay, what is going on? And I start just walking up the freeway, and about, I can see about 300 yards up, I can see the hitch on the ground. Now I'm like, there's no way that the hitch is usable, because it was a double-sided hitch. I'm like, dude, it probably scraped on the ground for a couple hundred yards. I mean, it's a two or three pound hitch that just got dropped on the highway and skipped all over. I walk up, and it's perfectly fine. But I'm like, ah, there's no way I'm going to be able to find a bolt, right? And not only if I found a bolt, there's no way I could find the nut that tightens to the bolt that would make sure it's good. So I just keep walking, though. Guess what? I find a bolt. And it's not the bolt from my car. It's a random bolt. And I'm just like, okay, well, I can maybe try to make this work. I, and, and genuinely, this is like weird Jesus card here. But the Lord, I felt like the Lord was like, just keep walking. I keep walking, and I find a nut that fits the bolt, that fits the hitch. So I walk back and all the guys are like, man, did we call AAA or anybody to come get us? I'm like, I think I just figured this out. <laughs> so I literally slide the hitch in, slide the bolt in, tie the knot. And I'm like, I don't know how this happened, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> so we went from, are we going to get in a car accident and you're not going to have any of your stuff to, oh, we're fine. But the reason that I tell you that story <clears throat> is because what well, you have to understand is there are breakaway chains of no matter what happens in your life of grace and of love that will hold it together for a period of time. But if you lose the bolt of love, the connection of following God will not last. If you lose the bolt of loving your neighbor, of loving those different than you, of loving a fallen, fallen world, if you lose that, I promise you the breakaway chains will not last long enough for you to feel the contentment, fulfillment, and wholeness that God has for you. And what's sad today is that the deceiver, the enemy, the, the actual term when it's broken down of Satan is the deceiver, one who tries to get you to believe a different truth. Now, I would say one of the greatest attacks of the enemy today is to get you to believe the truth that you can hate other people. You can have bitterness and unforgiveness. You can be somebody who is cynical, jaded, 
stereotypical to other people and not love the world that Jesus died for, but still have relationship. That's the trailer that is under the car trying to cause a wreck because God will not have convoluted examples. What do I mean by a convoluted example is one who professes I'm a child of God and a follower of God, but I don't walk in love. Because love is that bolt that binds it all together. Love is what drove Jesus to the cross. Love is what caused Jesus to do what he did for you. And love is what you are called to do in return. Simple, but infinitely hard and unbearable at times. So let's read the Bible. 1 John three thirteen to 24. I'm going to stop a few times throughout this because there's a a few kind of different reference points I want to break down as we're going line by line through this. It says this, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. I think this is actually a good thing for us as Christians to recognize there is going to come a point where people will hate us, but that doesn't mean we're allowed to hate them. We're about to find out why. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. This is a verse that many of us probably have read and skimmed over the surface of, but I want to phrase it like this. You show your resurrection from death to life by the depth of love you have for those around you. How many of you guys know that's okay? Hold on. You show the depth of the resurrection power inside of you by the ability you have and the depth you have of loving others outside of those who it's easy to love. John is bringing some realignment here. He's looking and he's saying, listen, and at this time, believe it or not, there are people in the world that are hating the church. And what John is saying is, hey, guess what, guys? Don't forget, Jesus was crucified. You're going to be hated. But at the same time, don't also forget that from that hatred doesn't breed hatred on your part. Rather, it should breed more love because that's what the resurrection power did is it allowed you to receive love and then give love. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. Oh, actually, the, the, the back half of verse 14, I didn't even read it so good. He who does not love abides in death. This <laughs> Pretty cut and dry. Let's keep going. (laughs) Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, John is bringing back some of these these statements that Jesus has said where you just heard them and you were like, what? Like, you know, when he talked about Jesus is the first one who references this. Like, you know, you you say that you love everybody, but anybody who even has a thought of of anything that's like it doesn't it's not out here, but it's in here is the same as sinning. So John is kind of bringing back these, these, these pictures and images and things that Jesus has talked about. But this is just interesting because it almost feels like the, the world is, or the, the church had shifted to like this acceptance of, hey, you know, you can make mistakes or you can do these things or you can hate a brother or you can, but at the same time, God loves you. And he's like, oh no, you're a murderer. It's like, okay, John seems a little excessive. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, what's interesting is this isn't saying, right, if you murder, you're not going to heaven. 
This is a whole other topic for another time. This one, and I love, and this is what I've been talking about recently with our church, if you've been here. This idea that eternal life is not just heaven in the future, but it's here now. If you notice this definition, it says eternal life abiding in Him. That is both eternal life in the present and abiding in the now. And I think a lot of the times what's been sad is that we look forward to a a concept of life that is so far out there and way out in the galaxies and we can't ever receive it and we hope it sometimes gets here. But God is at the same time saying, no, you can have eternal life today and you can abide in me today that will feel like a heaven in the future. Let's keep reading. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Notice the focus. Closing the heart to the brethren in need. Isn't that interesting? That's a test that, once again, when we start going through the infinitely, the infinite test that we're always going to go through, this is one where it's like, man, if we ask ourselves the question, have we closed our hearts to those around us who are in need? And in this specific context, it's talking about the brethren of the church, those who we know who are in need, who are followers of God, looking for a helping hand to keep going, yet we... Let's keep reading. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. I'm going to break down in the Greek deed and truth later on today, so don't worry. We're going to circle back to that. Then there's a topic change that goes kind of in a new direction, verse 19, and then kind of brings it back into the, in 24, let's read. It says, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater and our heart knows all things. I love this because this is like John's language of conviction in your heart. Not condemnation of your heart, but this this idea that the Spirit will actually lead you through your heart to do the right things. And what he says actually after the very next, next passage is interesting. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before the Lord. What does this mean? This is me essentially saying this. Sanctification brings a little bit less conviction. The more you're becoming like Jesus, the less you're feeling the condemnation of a lifestyle that isn't bringing him glory. Let's keep reading. It says this. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commands and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. I'm going to read this again for the American culture in the room that needs to be confronted. Whatever we ask, we receive because we keep his commands. Because we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. You know, I, what brings about a spoiled child, right? A parent that gives them everything they ask for. How many of us look at God and say, why haven't you given me everything I've asked for, not realizing that God's saying, because I don't want a spoiled son and daughter. And I think what happens in conviction and doing the ways and commands of God and taking on the the identity of a follower of him is what we ask for starts to look different, sound different. It starts to change. It starts to become holy. And in that place, we receive what we're asked for because he's trusted that we've kept his commands. 
and we steward his heart. Let's keep reading. It says this, verse 23, this is his command that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another. Once again, the infinite test as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit of him who has given us. What I love, once again, and I'm going to reference it again in, in these passages of 1 John, is that he's fighting this idea of eternal life. And if you actually reference how many times he talks about abiding, he talks about practicing, he talks about doing. When you start breaking it down, what you're seeing is he's trying to reinstitute this lifestyle in which we're not believing for a future kingdom. We're living the kingdom now. What you may not know about this is right after Jesus' death, many believed that he would be coming back momentarily. Meaning, a lot of the early church was rooted in this idea that everybody sold everything, banded together, and just started telling everybody about Jesus and said, listen, the clock's ticking, you don't have much more time. But then what happens is after year after year, decade after decade... John, from a young man now to an old man, people are realizing that the kingdom may not be the time frame that they thought, and so the importance of it may not be as important as they thought. And maybe they can live just for the eternity on earth. And the importance has changed because ultimately the time frame wasn't met. And I want to say this to you today, doesn't that sound like us going through seasons in which it feels like the time frame is so important that we follow Christ and do everything needed. But then as we realize that it's a lifestyle of faithfulness, practices of righteousness, and a holistic habit approach in which we're never done. We never clock out. We never tap out. It's never this new, okay, I've graduated. We start to realize, is it really that important to live this way? And what does John say? No, you're going to abide in the spirit and sense the everlasting and eternal love in a way that you never thought you could when you sign up for this. And so today what I want to do is I just want to break down with my remaining time how we can make the test easier and not harder. How do we make the test, the infinitely repeated test that we all hate taking of loving people? of being a conduit of love in this world. How do we make it easier and not harder? Because I'm not going to lie, it feels like it's getting harder and harder and harder to do. And if you know anything about our church, I have extremely long points, so they'll just leave them on the screen. Ethan, you're going to crush it back there. Just leave it up there because it's going to take four minutes to read anyway. Here we go. Number one, you experiencing hate, bitterness, judgment, or unforgiveness does not give you permission to retransmit it to others. Your resurrection life is tied to representation of Christ's love in the world that you live in every day. If you want life, you have to let go of death. Recently, I was in Michigan, and, uh, which is where we're from, and there was one guy that I've known and been friends with for years. While we lived there, uh, we started a basketball group uh, on Tuesday nights in a uh, tougher part of town. And what's hilarious is I always tell people the basketball group is the only one that I never, I would like have to text people and be like, hey, don't tell anybody. Because it could go from five dudes to like 60 dudes quickly. 
And the worst part was, is because it was in a rougher area of town, I never knew who was coming. And so trying to control it, I couldn't even play because half the time I was just arguing with somebody that I'm like, hey, I'm in charge. I'm trying to keep these games going. And I know that you think that's a foul, but I don't care. <laughs> but, but the thing is, I remember early on, I kind of had a bitterness and resentment to like the fact that all of these people, they would never come to church, but they always would come to basketball and kind of rain on the parade because we could never get consistent games. You'd play one and then sit six. But there was one guy I remember early on meeting and that one guy was just, he was funny and we got along and he played every week with us. But I'll never forget this. He actually, over the years, started coming to our college ministry. And then over the years, after we moved, actually started coming to our church. But one of the earliest conversations that I had with him was we were shooting hoops before a college and young adult night. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Micah, I don't know if I can choose Jesus. Because I don't know if I can forgive my brother's murderer. Think about that question. See, that's what's happening when eternal truth is meeting our human perspective. I know I want to be forgiven, but I also don't know if I can forgive. Think about that. The revelation of being somebody who wants forgiveness And I almost loved the innocence of the question because today in the church, we think we can ask for forgiveness and not forgive. And what's sad about that and what's interesting is that ultimately he encountered Christ's love and started following the Lord. And now it's actually funny. I was at church in Michigan and he was at church, had been coming. And my dad was talking to me about him, about how consistent he has been. But I'll never forget that. Where he looked at me and he said, listen, Micah, I've experienced hate, bitterness, judgment, and unforgiveness. And I know that following God does not give me permission to hold it anymore. And what's sad today is that we think we have permission to hold it. You don't. And it's not holding it to prove to the other person it's holding it and trusting that God will put something new in the hands that are open. How is John still talking about loving others over and over and over 60 years after Jesus has died? Decades have passed. Still love and forgive. You don't graduate from elementary principles. Elementary principles actually cannot be forgotten about as they are what future revelation and knowledge is built upon. You know what's sad is that when we think we graduate from forgiveness into higher levels of knowledge, not realizing that the moment we remove the elementary principles, there is nothing else that these things can stand on. And in all honesty, God goes, well... I'm going to make your circumstances force you to repass this test. Whenever I feel like, okay, God's making me retake a test, it's because I haven't prioritized. My heart has grown cold in something, and God's like, no, I won't allow you to profess me and live this way. Forgive. Don't allow bitterness to take root and take hold. 
the next point. The deed and the truth is what shows the proof. Your actions carry much more weight than your words. Time will sift the words you speak to ensure that your actions back them up. Love is much more than lip service. There's a practical service required. I said earlier that I'm going to break down um, deed and truth in the Greek, but before I do, I wrote this sermon on a Wednesday morning. On this Wednesday morning, I probably spent two or three hours, um, two or three hours kind of writing out kind of the the initial timeline. And at that time, me and Grace, uh, we're going to go get our oils, both cars oil changed. So I remember we go and I go to the take five on Bethany home. They're good guys. This last time took a little long, but they're good guys overall. But I remember I'm at the take five and I'm processing the fact that I've written this sermon. And a lot of the times I kind of have residual matter in my head in which I'm kind of fleshing out ideas and thoughts relating to the topic. As I'm sitting there, I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And I'm one of those guys that I can do good waiting for 32 seconds. (laughs) Like, my cross to bear is patience. (laughs) Always, repeatedly. God help me. I'm here. I'm listening. Anyway, don't spite me. Um, Guy walks up to my car and he says, hey, man, just so you know, your wait's going to be quite a bit longer. Which immediately I just smile and grit my teeth. And he says, the man in front of you can't pay for his oil change. He's got to walk to the Walmart across the street. And immediately in my head, I'm like, who goes to an oil change knowing they can't pay for it? But then the deed and truth set in of, hey, Micah, remember how you were studying what love was this morning? I looked at him. I said, hey, how much is this oil change? They said, $92. (laughs) I said, mother of God. (laughs) I said, I got it. And the guy looks at me and he is like, what? I said, oh, I got it. I'll take care of it. Like, take care of, like, what do you mean? Oh, I'll pay for it. You're going, you're, and he's like, and he's like looking around like, what? I'm like, here's, here you go. So I go and pay for it. And the guy gets out of his car and he walks up to me. And what's funny is I think a lot of us expect me to tell this story in which maybe this guy's like going to be so thankful and crying and open door for gospel presentation. (laughs) The fire of heaven falls and demons are renounced. (laughs) Guy looks at me and he goes, hey, man, thank you so much for that. I said, well, it wasn't wasn't me, man. I just love the Lord and I wanted you to know that he loves you. And he looks at me and goes, okay, cool, man. (laughs) And I remember like, I'm like, okay, well, God, the seeds are planted. (laughs) But I like, I pull into the bay and as I pull into the bay, the technician, one of the technicians comes over to me and he goes, Hey man, that was really cool. I've never seen that before. Did you, you never met him? No, but I believe in Jesus and that's just what I feel like we're called to do sometimes. And the wheels turning in that guy is enough that even though it was $92. (laughs) Deed. The Greek word ergo, meaning work, task, employment, action. That which is made of hard work. One who tills the ground, who toils and labors. Let's love 
in deed and in truth. Let's love in tilling the ground. Let's love in hard work. Let's love in task and in action. I don't want to hear the lip service. I want to see the work behind it. Deed and in truth. Truth, the Greek word aletheia, the state of not being hidden, the state of evidence of work being done. The candor of mind that is free from affection, pretense, simulation, falsehood, or deceit. It is unforgetting and it is remembrance. Remembrance of the need for action. The need for toil. The need to till the ground. You know, Matthew... 21, Jesus shares a story in 21, 31 through verse 32 of a father who goes to his sons and asks, will you work in the vineyard? One of them looks at him and says, no. The second son says, yeah, I'll go out and do it. But later on, the one who said he would do it doesn't do it. But the one who said he wouldn't do it does do it. And essentially he tells this story in a way where he says, listen, There are prostitutes, beggars, and Samaritans getting into heaven because they have rejected me at first, but have came around and are following me now, instead of accepting me at first, but then building rejection later on. And I want to say this to you today. I believe that it is easy to accept God, but it is also easy to reject what he has called us to do and think that we're working in the vineyard, but really we're sitting in the house. And there are other people who reject God, but when they come to him, the action is present. The sacrifice, the toil, and the work is present. I pray today that you're not one who said, oh, I'll go out, but actually won't. The last point is this. Love is a continuous, present tense reality to a follower of Jesus. It is the expressed evidence of a commitment of faith. If you want to track your growth and maturity, focus on your ability to forgive, sacrifice, release people, Not be divisive. Love the brethren. Relate with those you have nothing in common with. And on and on it will go. The challenge of the rest of your life. Many believe this passage, 1 John chapter 3, is actually a reference to the most famous passage of what is the most important things we're supposed to do that's found in Matthew 22. I want to focus on some wording in closing today. And I'm going to read it, Matthew 22, 34 through verse 30. This is Jesus. And once again, one of the most famous passages, it says this. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul and your mind. This is great and a foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor and yourself. On these two commandments depend. This statement I want you to focus on. The whole law and the prophets. The whole law and the prophets. The reason Jesus says this is because this actually means two different things. 
What I'm essentially saying is this, is Jesus says, hey, the whole law and the prophets is all the writings that they have that day that are taught in the Jewish synagogue. And what you actually come to understand is that early on we have the Ten Commandments that are famous, but then there's another layer of commands. And these commands are the mitzvot or the mitzvah commands, which is 613 commands that are brought about from the Ten Commandments. So we've got Ten Commandments that bring 613 commandments that then are broken down into minor commands, which are thousands and thousands of commands, all the way down to how you can saddle your donkey. So when, this, when Jesus, when this guy says, hey, what's the best one in the law? He says, no, the law and the prophets of the thousands of commands out there, of the 10, the 613, and the thousands underneath, of the major and of the minor, of all of them, love God and your neighbor. The hinge of what opens the door into the fullness of me. And I want to say this, like I said in closing, the, the simplification of all the law is in verse. Because God knew it would be harder for us to obey and take a lifetime of commitment to just follow these two rules than live a rigid life around the language of a thousand commands. Our infinitely repeated test that we hate taking, but will take all of our lives to do how we love Him and how we will love others. I believe that when Jesus gave these commands, many of us go, well, why can't I have more? It's because he knew that we wouldn't even be able to handle these two. And as somebody who's walked with the Lord and been faithful with God season after season in my life currently, I can say this, it will take a lifetime. But I believe that that lifetime is way better served pursuing a love of him and others than any other thing. Stand to your feet today. Just want to read a quick prayer over all those in this room today. So whatever your posture of receiving is, I pray that this prayer meets you where you are. God, today we repent of a love that isn't always like yours, of a test we feel we always are failing, of not meeting the standard of loving the world and following you today. May we re-sign up for a commitment of love, aware that when we, what we lack, we can ask you to increase. Would you open our eyes, shift our hearts, Release our spirit from any hate, bitterness, and bondage that has enslaved our capacity to love others. We want to be the ones known by their love. That in a culture of lip service love, we would be those who met it with our deed and truth. That in the Christian faith that sometimes feels so overwhelming, you are inviting us deeper into the two most important things. A love for you that in turn fuels a love for others. God, may we never separate those things, thinking that loving you means that we can hate others, criticize or condemn, or distance ourselves from the people you actually want us to grow alongside. 
In your word, it says to the wise man, even the bitter things taste sweet. And in your wisdom today, help us to walk out in the sometimes bitter habit of love, knowing we will taste the sweetness of the divine. We will repeat the test over and over, for it is a test that you have made for our fullness, contentment, and wholeness. We will love because you first loved us. In Jesus' name.